Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. You know, there are certain portions of this wonderful, marvelous book that you just kind of anticipate, or at least I do, as I'm preparing to preach through this. And this is certainly one of them. I know some of you have been asking me questions about this chapter since we started this about a year ago. And uh, because there's so much for us to consider, I, I, I want to slow down even more in these passages. Today we're just going to look at the first three verses, but this this chapter breaks into four different sections, and we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But I'm going to read the first two sections this morning, so if you've got your copy of God's Word, just follow along as I read verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones... And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we go any further in it? Father, I do thank you for your word, and I thank you for this gathering of your people, this opportunity to sing your praises, to remember your grace and mercy, and to to respond to what you have done for us, what you have revealed to us. I thank you for the time of confession where we can remember that we are sinners still in need of your renewing grace and mercy and sustaining power. And Lord, now as we come to your word for the purpose of understanding it through preaching, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to receive, and hands and feet that are ready to respond. Lord, accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word. Draw your people to the truth and let us be sanctified in that truth. And I pray that you would also be about that task of converting sinners into saints this morning. I pray that the gospel would be heard clearly and that it would bear fruit for the glory of Christ in our time together. I pray this through Jesus our Lord and in his name, amen. Our journey through this book has been an incredible one, but we have finally come 
to the last series of visions, the last cycle of visions. And what we see in this last portion of the book is we see the picture of the Lord of all the earth coming to finally claim his bride, destroying the greatest enemy of his people and then ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. But even though this final portion reveals something new, it is also familiar. The patterns that we see in this book repeat themselves over and over again. God's people face persecution, but the Lord promises to protect their souls. His judgment descends upon the wicked who hurt the church, who go after the church, and at the same time, salvation comes for the saints. Each cycle that we've seen so far ends with a vision of heaven where God's people dwell together with him in his presence. And we call this, or at least I've, I've referenced this over the last few months, I've referenced this as progressive recapitulation. Because with each new vision, we see something of God's plan in a fresh way. We see more of what God wants to show us. But the story itself is simply being retold through a new lens. But before we move on to this final section, let's take a moment to to just kind of remember where we've been in our study of this book. The book is made up of seven vision cycles. Those vision cycles, as I've argued, are all um, telling us the same period of time, the age of the church, the time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, and yet each cycle shows that season of life to us through a a particular theme or a particular lens. In Revelation chapters 1 through 3, you might remember, that's the section where where Jesus is revealed to us, and then he he has these letters that he's written to the seven different churches. So in Revelation 1 through 3, we see the vision of God's church on earth through these seven letters to the seven churches. In Revelation chapter 4, all the way through the first part of chapter 8, we see the vision of God's throne, what's going on in heaven. And then Jesus comes forward, he takes the scroll from the hand of the Father, and he begins to open the seven seals on that scroll. And those seven seals reveal what is to come in the vision. In the third section, it's Revelation 8 verse 2, all the way through the end of chapter 11, and it shows us the seven trumpets. And those seven trumpets are warning about the judgment of God that is to come. In in the next section, this is the fourth section, in Revelation chapter 12, all the way through the end of chapter 14, we see a series of visions showing us things from a spiritual perspective. We meet the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, and all of that is in the context of spiritual warfare. And then at the end, we see the final salvation of God's people in in the multiple harvests that take place. And the fifth cycle shows us Revelation chapters 15 all the way through 16, and we see the seven bowls of God's judgment. And then we just finished studying Revelation 17 through 19, where we see the fall of Babylon and then the triumphant return of Christ. Well, now we've entered into the final cycle. Revelation 20 all the way through Revelation 22, it's about the destruction of Satan. It's about the consummation of all things and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. But let me remind you, it's a new vision, but it's actually just another recapitulation. Chapter 20 
does not follow chapter 19 chronologically. This vision takes us back to the beginning of the gospel age. Revelation 20 is connected to the larger section that we're reading here because you might have remembered a few weeks ago I talked about the fact that these visions are showing us the warfare of the Father against the five enemies of God and of his people, the the beast and the false prophet and Babylon the great and those who bear the mark of the beast. So we've seen the destruction of those in the previous vision. This section, this vision, only shows us the destruction of one, the great enemy, and it's Satan himself. But in this section, we're also introduced to what is perhaps the most controversial and debated idea in the whole book, and it's the idea of the millennium. And I've been getting these questions from day one, so I'm finally going to be able to answer some of those questions. We have no small task ahead of us. This is the the most challenging chapter in the most challenging book, and we're going to talk about the most challenging concept in the whole thing. So that's all we got to do today. One point. That's all we're dealing with. One point. The binding of Satan. So let's look back at verse 1. Here's what we see. Here's what John saw, and he communicates this to us. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. Now there's a lot going on in this verse that helps us to kind of understand the vantage point. John sees another angel, an unnamed angel, but this angel is coming down from heaven. And and the, the, the vantage point helps us to understand what's happening. John is now back on earth and he's looking up and he sees an angel coming down. That helps us to at least understand something of what he's seeing. John sees this angel coming down and the angel has a great key and a great chain. And the mission of this angel, as we see in this text, is he's coming to make an arrest. He's going to seize the dragon, and he's going to bind the dragon. So here's the question. How are we supposed to read this passage? Now, one of the most pressing questions that comes to our minds, not just here, but throughout the Revelation, is how are we supposed to interpret these visions? Are they to be understood literally or should they be understood symbolically? Are we to expect these visions to play out in reality in a literal way or should we understand them through a symbolic lens? I'll ask the question with a little more point to it. Do you expect that a a literal angel is going to descend to the earth with a literal key in his hand? And he's going to open the bottomless pit that will serve as the prison for Satan. And then he's going to use a literal chain to bind Satan. Actually, Satan is referred to here as a dragon. So are we to understand literally that a dragon is going to come and be bound and overpowered by a literal chain? The answer is no, we don't. We understand that that language is symbolic. The fact that the angel has possession of the key, the key to the abyss or the key to the bottomless pit, must be understood within the context of the whole book. Simon Kistemaker, and by the way, for for those of you who are new, this might be fresh and new for you, but those of you who have been with us for quite some time, this is nothing new. I've been interpreting the book all along in this particular fashion, and here's why. Simon Kistemaker writes this, Revelation on the whole, and chapter 20 in particular, demonstrates symbolism. 
For instance, the chain with which the angel binds Satan is not a customary string of metal links. Neither is the key to the abyss a metallic object, nor are there a thousand years that are chronologically ten centuries. It is clear that a spirit cannot be shackled with a chain, but can be restricted by a divine command. And the expression 1,000 in a book that is filled with symbolic numbers intimates a multitude that is a great and large number. We've seen from the very beginning that this book is filled with symbolism. It's filled with numerology. It's filled with supernatural imagery and allusions to Old Testament prophecy, which means that this is the most unique book in all of Scripture. And it falls into a category, a, a genre we understand as apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature contains elements that we don't see in other forms of biblical literature. And therefore, the way that we read and interpret and understand this book must take into account the genre of literature that it falls within. So the question is not, is this symbolic? Of course it is. The real question is, what do these symbols mean? So let's start with the key. The key that this angel holds in his hand. What does the key symbolize? In Revelation chapter 1, in verse 18, by the way, this is not the first time we've seen a key referenced in the Revelation. In, in chapter 1, verse 18, when we see this amazing picture of Christ displayed before John. This is how the whole revelation opens. When we see that, we are told that Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. And we know that he holds the keys of death and Hades because he overcame death through his resurrection. We do not understand that in that vision he's holding a literal set of keys that have a literal purpose on earth. The keys are symbolic. The keys show us that he holds power over the realm of death. And he holds this power because he overcame the grave. He overcame death through his resurrection. The keys symbolize his authority and his ownership. Now, I'm not going to ask you to do this, but every one of us could probably pull out our keys and shake them and make a little bit of noise. Let's ask a simple question. How do we know who owns the big black truck sitting out, or, or one of the big black trucks sitting out in the, the parking lot? How do we know? Well, it's the one who holds the keys. The one who holds the keys, he or she owns and has authority over that truck. How do we know who owns and has authority over the house across the street? Well, it's the one who holds the keys. Keys are symbols for authority and ownership. In Revelation chapter 9, Christ's authority over the demonic powers on earth is shown in that they are allowed to come out of the abyss, the same language that's used here in chapter 9. They're allowed to come out of the bottomless pit, but they are only allowed to torment those who do not have the seal of God on them. So even in chapter 9, we see this reference to Christ's power and authority being displayed in that he only allows these demons to affect one group of people. And in that passage, guess what? Keys are mentioned. And here in Revelation 20, an angel comes down from heaven with a key. All of these visions, notice where the keys come from. It's Christ who holds the keys. The keys come down from heaven. All of this is symbolizing for the, the fact that authority and power and ownership 
belongs to heaven. It belongs to Christ. He has the power over death and Hades. And that power is symbolized in these keys. It is Jesus who holds and wields all authority over death, all authority over demonic powers, and now we see that he holds authority over Satan himself. That's what this vision is revealing to us through the symbolism of the keys. But the time has come, according to this vision, for Satan to be bound. Hence, there's this chain The angel comes, seizes the dragon, binds him with the chain, and then throws him into the pit, shuts the pit, seals the pit over. And this means, according to the rest of the text, think about the context that we've read here, this means that Satan is no longer allowed to move freely about the earth in the same way that he was before. In verse 3, we are told what the binding of Satan is actually entails. Because he is bound, he is no longer able to deceive the nations. You see that in verse 3? The binding of Satan results in his no longer being able to deceive the nations. That's a very specific form of binding. The binding of Satan results in a limiting of his influence and authority. His power of deception has been divinely restricted. Now, before we move on, I want to remind you that we've already seen God place limits on this kind of satanic, demonic activity several times in the book. I've already mentioned one of them. In chapter 7, God placed a seal on his people so that they could not be harmed by the four horsemen. The demonic forces that come into the world in chapter 7, they can do harm in a certain way, but they can't harm the people of God. In other words, their authority was limited by God. In chapter 9, the demons released from the bottomless pit were not allowed to harm those who had the seal of God on their forehead. So what we've seen so far... Right, I've made the argument that this is progressive recapitulation. We're seeing the same thing over and over through a different thematic lens. And if that's true, then we should have seen something of the binding of Satan or his influence already. And in fact, we have in chapter 7 and in chapter 9. And now we see it again here in chapter 20. Only it's not the demonic forces coming into the world, it's Satan himself The binding of Satan in Revelation 20 is specific, but this is not the only time that we've seen God do this to the enemy. But the pressing question, and maybe you've got a thousand other questions in your mind, but in my mind, the pressing question is when? When does this limiting of Satan's influence take place? Well, if you'll think about the broader context of this passage, we we know a couple of things. First of all, the binding of Satan is synonymous with the thousand years. Because at the end of the thousand years, he's going to be loosed, right? So the binding of Satan is synonymous with, or simultaneous with, the thousand years. And both of these are occurring, according to verse 4, within the framework of the reign of Christ. So that's what we see here. Satan is bound. This thousand-year time frame is going to take place. Christ is going to reign with his people. All of those things are happening simultaneously. So the question is, when is this supposed to happen? Will it happen in the future? Has it happened in the past? Is it happening now? Where does the reign of Christ and the limiting of Satan fit into the story that we're living in today? 
And here's what you've all been waiting for, I'm sure. Let's talk about the millennium for a minute. And there are several views on this, and I'm not going to go into immense amount of detail in all of these views. There are entire books that have been written on this subject. I highly recommend that you find some, read some. If you need some specific recommendations, we have some in our library, and Mark Ritchie would be glad to help you. I would be glad to help you. But there are three, you probably know this, there are three predominant views on the millennium. But within each view, there are many different variations, right? So let's just talk about a general summary of each view. The first is probably the most dominant one, the most, uh, well, the, most people would hold to this, in the South especially, and because we're really close to Dallas Theological Seminary, most people in this area will probably hold to some version of this. It's called premillennialism. All of these fall within orthodoxy, by the way. If you hold to this view, that's, that's fine. Within your scope of understanding the revelation, if you hold to this view, you are well within the bounds of orthodoxy, so, and that's fine. We don't, we don't have a specific eschatological vision as a church. We, we understand that there are, there's a need for some liberty here. But let me just explain this. For premillennialists, they teach that Jesus will return before, prior to, pre the millennial reign of Christ. This view says that Christ will come again, he will establish his kingdom on earth, and then reign for a literal thousand years. At least most premillennialists say it's literal. Not every premillennialist actually believes that it's literal. The 1,000 years represents something of a golden age of peace. And then at the end of that time, there will be a final rebellion and then a judgment day. And like I said, most pre-mill folks believe that the 1,000 years is literal, but not everyone actually holds to that. Some believe that it is more symbolic. Either way, the chronology of their eschatology is the same. Right? Christ returns, ushering in this lengthy millennial reign. There's going to be a rebellion at the end, and then the final judgment, and then we enter into the eternal state. That's the premillennial dispensational premillennialism. This view is marked by a general pessimism about the future. Things are going to get progressively worse in the world until Christ returns. And I, I actually agree with that point. I think we can see that quite clearly from the text of Scripture. But that's the premillennial view in, in summary form. What about the postmillennial view? Postmillennialists believe, they teach that Jesus will return after or post the millennium. They believe that the 1,000 years of Christ's reign is symbolic, it's not literal, and it's actually occurring now. This view says that before Christ comes again, the entire world, not every single individual human being, but the entire world, all of the nations, all the people groups, will be won through conversion to the gospel. And, and during this time, sin and conflict will gradually be defeated Righteousness and peace will increasingly reign on the earth. Uh, this view understands the present time will culminate in a golden age of success in missions and the transformation of society. And it's called postmillennialism because this golden age comes first and then Christ returns. That's the post-mill view. And, and a lot of folks that hold to a post-mill view, as they look at the world today, they say, well, it's going to be a really long time before Jesus comes back. 
And then there's another view. It's generally referred to as amillennialism. I prefer the phrase inaugurated millennialism, and I'll tell you why. But amillennialism is the view held most commonly by Reformed Christians, especially younger Christians coming up. I would argue that the the vast majority of New Testament Greek scholarship that's been done over the last 30 to 40 years has been done from this perspective. The amillennial camp teaches that the millennium is not a future earthly kingdom. Rather, the millennium is a symbolic description of the spiritual kingdom of God that is occurring now. And just, just so we're clear, as I've been talking about the gospel age throughout this study, my understanding of the millennium is that it encompasses the gospel age. It is often assumed that amillennialism believes that there is no millennium which is not accurate. And the reason people believe that is because generally when you put an A in front of a word, it negates that thing. For instance, think about an atheist. A a theist is someone who believes in God, and and, and an atheist does not believe in God. So the idea would be, well, they're amillennial. They don't believe in a millennium. That's not exactly true. Some wrongly assume that. And that's why I like the, the other phrase, inaugurated millennialism. But There's a similarity between the post-mill view and the ah-mill or inaugurated millennial view. We both believe that the 1,000 years is symbolic of the time between Christ's first and second coming. And this view understands that Christ is reigning now. We're not waiting for that to come. Christ is reigning now. His reign began with his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and it will conclude in this age, this particular age, by the way, you can think about this when you, when you think about just the ages that are spoken of in the Bible. There's this age and there is the age to come. There's not a, an additional age in between. And the understanding is that Christ began to reign when he came to earth and accomplished his redeeming purpose on the cross and then by resurrection, and this age will end with his second coming. From the New Testament, we use this language of already but not yet, right? Are you all familiar with that? The kingdom of Christ, the reign of Christ has already been inaugurated, but it has not fully been consummated. And that is consistent within this amillennial view. The 1,000 years is a reference to the church age. This view says that what happens at the end of this current age is that Christ will return and usher in the eternal kingdom, meaning that 1,000 years is symbolic not literal, and we're living in that time right now. It is important to point out, and you may never have thought about this, maybe you have, it's important to point out that at no point in his ministry does Jesus say anything about a millennium. At no point in the New Testament, outside of the Revelation, do any of the New Testament authors say anything about a millennium. Now there's plenty that said about the end of the age. There's plenty that's said about the eternal state, but nothing is said about the millennium. The only time we see that is right here in Revelation 20, surrounded by symbolic language set within a book of numerology and symbolism. 1,000 in symbolic terms is 10 to the third power. 10 denotes fullness. And so when you multiply that over and over, you're seeing something that is symbolically representing a great period of time, not a literal 1,000 years. This is and has been my perspective for several decades. 
And I could tell you how I got to this place, but maybe that would take more time than I have. But like many of you, I grew up in a church that held to a dispensational premillennial view. And as I read the Bible and as I heard that explained and taught, I, I didn't quite grasp that. I didn't understand it. It didn't make sense based on what I was reading and the way that I was reading the text. And I had been taught by some pretty well-read and well-studied individuals. And over time, as I began to study the Scriptures more and more, I came to a, a, my own view, I would call it. And then when I began to read more broadly about this in seminary, I realized that there was a, there was a title to the view that I held, and it was something like amillennialism. Like many of you, I grew up in that situation. And maybe, maybe you were like me in that you were taught that to hold to any view other than dispensational premillennialism was problematic. I was taught that dispensational premillennialism was one of the fundamentals of the faith. And if you didn't hold to that view, not only were you on the bounds of orthodoxy, but you were on a straight path toward liberalism because you weren't taking the Bible seriously. The justification for this accusation was that an Amil view did not take the revelation seriously because it relied upon symbolic interpretation. That's a completely false accusation. Every book of the Bible and every passage of Scripture must be interpreted in its original context and according to the genre of literature that it falls within. And I think we've seen from the very beginning of this study, or at least I've tried to show from the very beginning of this study, that this book is filled with meaningful symbolism. And we can understand that symbolism because that symbolism is also taught within the context of so much of what the Old Testament reveals to us in the prophets. The countless visions that we have studied over the last year are intended by the author to be viewed through a symbolic lens. We've seen countless occurrences of numerology, numbers being used in a symbolic way. Uh, We've seen this over and over, and we have every anticipation that the author wants us to understand it in a symbolic way. There are things in this text that are obviously symbolic. Even those who hold to a pre-mill view are, are going to agree with the symbolic nature of the key and the chain and the dragon. So why would we shift from a symbolic interpretation to a literal interpretation in three verses? That's not how you do hermeneutics. But this brings up a lot more questions for you, I'm sure. And I know I'm going to get myself in trouble with this sermon, so I'm okay with that. If the 1,000 years is occurring now, as I believe it is, then let's go back to the question, when is Satan bound? When did this occur? Well, what does the text tell us? The text tells us that the binding of Satan by heaven's authority will result in his no longer being able to deceive the nations. This doesn't mean that Satan is no longer alive. This does not mean that Satan is no longer active in the world. It does mean that his efforts to deceive the nations have been limited. Now let's think about that, not just in the context of this right here, but let's interpret that that idea by looking broadly to what the rest of the Scriptures would teach us, specifically what Jesus has to say in the New Testament. 
when Jesus comes into the world, his coming into the world impacted the work of Satan in profound ways. And Jesus explains that. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said this to his disciples. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he may indeed plunder the house. Now Jesus has this conversation with his disciples after they've come back from a season of ministry where they're, they're boasting about the fact that they, Jesus gave them a measure of the Spirit and they go out into the community and they're able to cast out demons and they come back and they're celebrating that. And Jesus gives them this, that's what I've come to do, to bind the strong man so that you can go out and plunder his house. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and behold, I have given you authority. There's that idea of the keys again. I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice about this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice in uh, that your names are written in heaven. Same thing there. Jesus is talking to his disciples about their ministry to proclaim the gospel, and they're marveling about this. And Jesus says, listen, I saw Satan fall, and I have already given you authority over Satan's demons. When Jesus was on the doorstep of the crucifixion in John chapter 12, he told them, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In Colossians chapter 2, we read that God disarmed the rulers and authorities, and those are talking about spiritual rulers and authorities, disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, stripped them of their power, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So let me summarize those verses for us. Jesus came to bind Satan so that he might plunder the world. He gave his disciples authority over the power of the enemy, and this was in the context of them being sent out to preach the good news. As he looked toward the cross, Jesus said that Satan was about to be cast out so that all people could be drawn to salvation, and Jesus claimed victory over Satan, triumphed over him through the cross. Here's what that means. All of those passages are teaching very plainly that it was the coming of Christ into the world that resulted in the limiting of Satan's influence. I'm just going to let that sit for a minute. All of those passages outside of Revelation 20 make very clear that with the coming of Christ and his victory on the cross, Satan's power in the world has been limited. Are demons still active? Absolutely. Is Satan still active? Absolutely. We are, we are told various things about him. Satan can still stir up unbelievers to persecute the church. He is still doing this. But he cannot stop the gospel from spreading to the ends of the earth. That's what it means that he no longer has the ability to deceive the nations. Peter tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour it's First Peter 5.8. He's like a lion on a leash. And within the range of his leash, he is still very powerful. But outside the boundary of that, he is not a threat. Now again, that's a metaphor. Right? 
But that's the picture that the scriptures teach us. Jesus warns us that Satan still has one tooth left. He will seek to lead astray the elect if possible. But with the coming of Christ and his victory on the cross, Satan no longer has free reign among the nations. Now, I'm just going to sit here for a second because I understand that for many of you, that is a completely different paradigm than the way you've understood the binding of Satan. I have this conversation with my mother all the time, and it's a struggle because I'm explaining things from this biblical perspective, and she's trying to see it through the dispensational lens that she has. And not that that's bad, but I understand the challenge of you've been thinking about something all of your life a certain way, and now here comes this new thing, and there's all this scripture that goes along with it, and it's confusing. It's even made some people angry with me. And that's, I understand that. It goes with the territory. Let me give you another big picture thought. In the Old Testament, God claimed one nation as his own, Israel. And he left the rest of sinful humanity to themselves. During that time, those nations, those unbelieving nations, were exposed to demonic influence. And they had all kinds of different gods that they worshipped. And we are told, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that there was a spiritual reality behind those dead idols, those pagan idols. During that time, those nations were exposed to demonic influence, and they indulged in idolatry, just like we would expect. And during that season of time we would understand that Satan had full reign, had full access to the Gentiles because God had limited his own redemptive blessing to the single nation of Israel. But when Christ came, the scope of God's redemptive blessing exploded. The nations of this world are no longer under the unchecked deception of Satan. They are now open to the power of the gospel. The nations that were once far off have been allowed to draw near. The gospel, not Satan, now has free reign and authority to the ends of the earth. And it is in that sense that Satan is bound and the gospel of Christ is free. The gospel is free. When the biblical account of history moves from the ministry of Christ to the ministry of the disciples, we see this on full display. You might not think about it in those terms, in that big picture framework, but that's exactly what we see, that the scope of God's redemptive blessing just explodes into the world. And it begins in the book of Acts with the gospel being proclaimed to the Jews and more Jews being added to the church. But it's not very long before the boundaries of the gospel's fruit begins to spread. Peter is led to go in the Spirit preach the gospel to a family, to a group of Gentiles. And they not only accept what he tells them, but they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And if, if you don't know just how big of an issue that is for a Gentile to be the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, then you really don't know the whole Old Testament very well. You might need to go back and reread it. The Old Testament, there were only three groups of people who were anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were anointed for a very specific purpose. Those were prophets, priests, and kings. Old Testament believers didn't have the Spirit of God dwelling in them in the same way that New Covenant believers do. That was one of the promises of the New Covenant, that we were going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But 
much of what the Jews understood was that this is coming for us. And when Peter goes and preaches to a group of Gentiles and they're filled with the Spirit, his mind is blown. And that's not where it stops. Then the Apostle Paul is converted on the road to Damascus. And he quickly learns that Christ has called him to go also to the Gentiles and take the gospel to all the nations. And and all over the Gentile world he goes, and the gospel bears fruit. Men and women hear of Christ, and they receive Christ. And they, they turn from those dead and demonic idols, those pagan idols, and they begin to serve the living God through faith. What's happening there? Satan's influence has been limited. His power to deceive has been bound, and the gospel is now free. And the rest of the New Testament bears witness to the spread of the gospel in this way among the Gentiles. The history of our world is the history of gospel mission. The gospel begins in Jerusalem, and then it goes on to Judea and Samaria, and then it continues on through the Middle East to Rome, and then it goes from Rome to Spain, and then from Spain to Europe and Egypt and Africa and Asia and South America and North America, and it's continuing to spread to this day. The Gentiles that were once cut off from the truth of Christ are cut off no more. And the question is, why? Why? Because Jesus came to bind the strong man. Jesus came to bind the enemy, and ever since, his disciples have been plundering the house. The binding of Satan in this way is not a future occurrence, it is a present one. It began when Christ came, and it will hold until the end of the age. Satan is under messianic authority. Not all of his influence has ceased but Jesus has sovereignty over him and his demonic forces. Now you might notice in verse 7, and I am about to wrap this up, notice in verse 7 that when Satan is released at the end of 1,000 years, once again he will come out to deceive the nations, but his freedom will not last long. This will occur, I believe, at the end of history and just before the Lord returns. I believe that's the best way to understand Revelation 20. I believe it's the best way for us to understand the thousand years symbolically. We are living within the millennium right now. During this time, Satan is bound, but he's still active. God has limited his influence so that he's not allowed to deceive the nations. This has happened to allow the church to spread the good news of Christ to every tribe, tongue, and people. And when this age is about to end, the restrictions placed upon Satan will be removed Which brings me to some closing thoughts and applications. Three very simple thoughts. First one is this. Now is the time to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now is the time to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. God has not called us to be his people simply to sit in these nice, comfortable purple chairs and to just grow fat and happy on everything and every blessing that he has for us in this culture. He has called us to be ambassadors for Christ where we are. And he has called us as a church to proclaim the gospel indiscriminately to the ends of the earth. And our commitment to the spread of the gospel must not diminish. Our commitment to the preaching the gospel here and abroad must continue. And that's a daunting idea because... As the world grows increasingly hostile to Christianity, our tendency might be to withdraw so that we can avoid conflict. 
Some of us will choose to remain quiet so that we don't rock the boat. We'll shift our priorities to our families and our own church gathering, and pretty soon we'll lose sight of our mission to be salt and light in a dark and dying world. But we must be both a truth-loving church who places a high priority on discipleship and doctrinal faithfulness, but we also must go where Christ has called us to go, and that is that we must love the lost well, both here and abroad. Now is the time to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. Number two, it won't always be like this. The the scripture says that after that, he must be released for a little while. That's a frightening thought, isn't it? And I believe that that is still to come. What will this world look like when Satan is let loose again? It will result in the hardening of men's hearts against the truth. That's what it will do. That, in the context, that's what that means. He will be able to deceive the nations again for a short time, and he will put significant effort into deceiving them. Let your love for your friends, and let your love for your coworkers, and let your love for your family members, and let your love for your neighbors motivate you to take the gospel to them now. The window will close. So let's take bold advantage of it while we can and tell them of Christ. Speak the truth of the gospel. Help them to understand their need of forgiveness. This is what we're called to do because it won't always be like this. And then lastly, when Christ returns, and I know this is going to be a challenging thought to some of you, when Christ returns, the window of redemption will be ultimately closed. I don't believe in the dispensational pre-mill view that during that 1,000 years, people will have a second chance. I don't think the Bible teaches that at all. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to come to Christ with the empty hands of faith and confess your sins and receive him as Lord. I do not believe that there will be a window of redemption opened after his return. The gospel still has power. In fact, the gospel has power to the ends of the earth. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so for those of you who are here who do not know Christ, maybe you're just here for some other reason, I can summarize the gospel message, the good news of Christianity very simply. And it's not that you have to be a good person so that God would love you. It's that because of the love God has for his creation, he has displayed his love through his Son, who came to earth and lived a righteous life that we can't live, and then died a sacrificial death to atone for our sins, and by faith in Christ, you can be forgiven, and you can have the seal of God upon you, and the hope of eternity, and you need not fear this day. Because at that point, he who was in you is greater than he who was in the world. So if you want to talk about accepting Christ, what that looks like to receive Christ, I stand ready to talk with you. Let's pray ask the Lord to accomplish his purpose. Father, thank you for this time in the word. Thank you for being allowed and being able to say hard truths and hopefully to be able to say them in a way that is loving, but but most importantly, in a way that is consistent with your word. Accomplish your purpose, edify your people, help us to walk from this place confident, not in a system, but in your word and what it says. And Lord, I do ask that even now in this moment, by your spirit, you would be bringing dead men to life, that you would be bringing hearts to life. You tell us that's part of the promise of the new covenant, that those stony hearts will be made like hearts of flesh. 
Lord, I pray that you would accomplish your saving purpose today through the preaching of the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.